Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, whether they're eBooks or earrings. Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Nathaniel Pennington. He is CEO and founder of the Humboldt Seed Company. We're going to talk about what he's doing in cannabis. We're going to talk a little bit about really what goes into the cultivation side and all the things that you need to kind of get right inside cannabis to actually produce the crop, right? We're dealing with agricultural product here at the end of the day. I don't think some people realize that all the time, but, you know, we're obviously produce it in lots of different ways, but, you know, it all starts with, you know, dealing with an agricultural crop. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the history of that. We're going to talk about where are we right now as an industry? What are the factors that go into that and why this is so important? So with that, Nathaniel, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. So before we jump into kind of all the details of what you're doing now in cannabis, let's get a little bit of the backstory in terms of professional background, how you get into cannabis. Let's hear the let's hear the history. Sure. So, you know, I was a I guess probably an average high school kid on, you know, yeah. the, the cannabis was around and I think that's kind of you can't deny that I'm not going to say that I didn't inhale. So, um <laughs> In any case, uh, you know, there was some interest there. I, I can't say exactly it was it was professional interest at that time, but mm-hmm. I quickly 
I grew up in Philadelphia, New York, and I moved to California, specifically Humboldt County, at a fairly young age. I was 18 years old. When I got here, of course, you know, Humboldt County cannabis was and is obviously a, a huge theme for us here. And that said, I didn't specifically come here on some kind of cannabis pilgrimage or just to enjoy the cannabis. It was really, I just kind of ended up here. I was traveling the country with a high school sweetheart. And this is just Uh, There's always a woman involved. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, quickly, though, after getting to Humboldt and settling in, I really kind of honed in on, on some of my life's interests and things that would be career paths and passions of mine. And so there's cannabis, but for a long time prior to cannabis being something that you could do, you know, professionally, so to speak, or, or out in the open, let's just say, I ended up getting, found myself the program coordinator of a local nonprofit that had a focus on salmon restoration and you know, biology and in the environment, just essentially, you know, fixing up Humboldt's rivers and streams. And if you're not super familiar with Humboldt or even just the Pacific Northwest, you know, just salmon is is both economic and kind of intrinsic. It's a keystone yeah. animal, you know. So it it's was a passion of mine for many years and and quickly became my career. Technically, I worked for a nonprofit mostly for nine years and then but the whole time I also was employed by the State Department of Fish and Wildlife, occasionally the feds as well, <laughs> doing mm-hmm. fisheries biology. And what I was doing for the state was more part-time. I, I was kind of this a liaison between local schools out here in the county or, you know, even just the region and local school districts and and then fisheries biology. So when we did, we had a lot of youth programs that we'd bring the kids out and learn about salmon. Eventually, Mm -hmm. it segued for me into, uh, you know, I was very involved in a settlement negotiation between Warren Buffett's company that, that actually owns hydroelectric dams here in the area. And that the salmon were impacted massively by yeah. by these dams. And so there was that whole process, which, you know, unfortunately we're still kind of stuck in, in quagmire there, but there's been a massive amount of progress. And, you know, just as to let folks know, this is no small project, so it takes a long time. That Nat yeah. Geo coined it as the world's largest river restoration project. It's definitely wow. the, the world's largest dam removal project. So it's something that, that naturally would take a long time. But we're, you know, at this point, we really kind of need to turn up the heat and get it going because we're kind of starting to lose the salmon populations. And, you know, I'm going deep into this. I know this is a show about cannabis, but one, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that, uh, you know, was sort of maybe ironic or just a coincidence was that many of these, you know, cannabis is a special species that Mm -hmm. has been cultivated all over the world, has a huge value to people. And, and salmon are a special animal that sometimes you hear about endangered species and you're like, you know, what is the curly tail purple (laughs) salamander? You know, like, what does that have to do with me? 
why is it so important to save this? But when it comes to like salmon and in a whole region, you know, like we've got the river that one of the rivers I was working on predominantly is called the Salmon River. And, you know, it's hard to think that someday if we don't do something in the near future, the Salmon River is not going to have a single salmon. (laughs) And so one of the sort of strategies, or I don't want to say strategies, but one of the important things we needed to dive into to figure out how to fix up these salmon it was uh, genomics, and I, I would. It was funny because I was really young, and I didn't even see the future. But I kind of could. I could tell that it was almost a metaphor for, like, I would say, you know, look, we need to protect this run. This is the dank strain, <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of terrible. But you know, like, it was funny because I had to, you know, kind of make bridges for either youth or people that I knew might have a future trying to fix rivers or wanting to make this area more sustainable and, and ecologically strong. So, you know, you have to speak to those folks and, and the cannabis was, has always been kind of cool, you know, whereas fixing rivers and stuff that can be a little, maybe to young kids, it's not so cool. So, and it really ended up actually playing out that way. I mean, we, I helped get a bunch of reports published in genomic studies, wrote some grants and, and, you know, kind of got the projects going and they ended up getting published in really prestigious journals. We ended up being able to get species, you know, listed at least for the time being they're, they're on the list. And and that affords them huge Mm -hmm. protections when it comes to cannabis it's not all we do, but one of the things that's really we've realized that's really important is that you do need to hold on to these special genetics that we don't want to essentially homogenize our whole the plant. And there's so yeah. many things that we we may not even understand yet that could be really valuable about one a strain that is maybe could be forgotten or lost. So yeah, I mean it's fascinating, kind of the the trajectory you're on in terms of you know look looking at kind of these species inside you know certain environmental contexts and you know what was impacting them and and looking at genetic research and then getting into the cannabis side of things. But I'm curious, like when we talk about kind of strains in cannabis or, or cultivars in cannabis, like what what is it that we're actually what does this mean? I mean, is this we hear all the kind of the names we have for these different things and the names we have for the plants or for the different strains. But like underlying this, what are we actually talking about or dealing with when we talk about the genetics of the plant? Yeah, well, that's, that's a popular question. And I think that, you know, if you want to try to good luck trying to define what exactly a strain is, um, (laughs) whether it's, you know, should be called a cultivar or we just call it strain because if you, you know, look at, the definition of strain, it, it actually could apply to cannabis, although it's most commonly in, in science, it's like yeah. strains of bacteria and things like that. But it's a plant that because of its sort of like anthropogenic uses and in human interaction, it has taken on many, many different, you know, it, it has a, a life of its own with humans. And so it's not something that you can just very rarely can you just look at it and say, here it is, and it's existing in nature, unaltered by humanity, because we've had so many interactions with it over since time immemorial, let's just say. And so I think that when we look at like what's important to protect, 
you know, I think it is these varietals that, you know, we call them land races, but things that have been somewhat excluded from the, you know, the trend to sort of like homogenize or, and no one's doing it on purpose, but it's just, you know, you have varieties that like, look right now, THC test results are a huge driver in the California marketplace. And, you know, whether or not that actually equates to what people really want from the plant is a different story, but it is a metric that you can read on a menu at a dispensary and, you know, it gives you information that you don't have to interpret too much because it's there for you, you know? So, and I think we like that as humans, you know, that just kind of dumbs it down for us. But when it really comes down to it, I'm certain that what people would rather be able to do is, you know, have all of these different types of cannabis at their fingertips, be able to, you know, pick them up and smell them and interact with them and then pick one and, you know, purchase it. But, and that's sort of more what you get from like a farmer's market when you're going and shopping, you know, for, you want to make caprese salad. Well, there's, you know, if it's a big enough town, you've got five different local farms that have different tomatoes and you know there's that farm has really great looking basil and this one has the great cucumbers and so you know you piece it all together and and you get that dream caprese salad that you're after uh we're not quite there yet with cannabis and i think you know but i think that that's what actually consumers of cannabis really want whether they're you know rappers that are have a whatever just like you know all the way from like the sort of pop culture folks all the way to the you know grandma that's just has you know some joint pains and wants to try to medicate with cannabis and uh so it's my hope that we get there someday and i think that the stigma that comes along with cannabis is finally starting to crumble a little bit so I think that some of the just ridiculousness of of certain regulations, hopefully we see some change in that and we can have more of a kind of an organic interaction with the plant. And it's different everywhere. You know, it's this is California. We've mm-hmm. had exposure to legal, whether it's medical, whatever you want to call it, but legal cannabis where you don't feel like, you know, you're breaking the law <laughs> when you buy yeah. it. So yeah. we, we're used to that. And I think that, you know, things like that will come to a place like this. It'll, it'll come sooner. And then in some of these new markets, it's going to be, you know, a, still a bunch of security guards at the door. And, and yeah. you can't touch the plant until you've purchased it and go out to your car. And then you can open it finally and see what you bought. <laughs> and like so... <laughs> I'm hoping that that changes and I think that it will because I, I really do. I think that that's what, you know, people want. And there's always the the kind of cliche comparison to the craft brew industry, but you know, and and I could dive into that, but I think that, yeah, let me understand or let's, let's talk about kind of how you're approaching it from the business side then. So tell me about the seat company, Humboldt seat company, and tell me like how, given this need that you see in the market to really continue to have access to these strains, you know, and, and, prevent the kind of homogenization of the cannabis, the strains that we're dealing with. Like, how have you approached this? What's the strategy? What do you do as a company? What is your role in the process? Sure. So really that aspect of it is, is a investment. It's, 
a long-term investment for our company because where we make money essentially is producing those genetics for farms that that have to fit into the the box that we've been talking about which is like the high thc notoriety as far as the strain names and things like that we do we we do well in those markets we actually have some of the most uniform seed stock that's available of you know relatively popular strains or, or very popular strains and so we can produce those we can make them you know feminized so that you have all the seeds coming out female and i think one thing that we're kind of well known for actually is being farmers being able to purchase thousands tens of thousands even hundreds of thousands of seeds and plant fields of them and then and you know have it all work together in in a batch not having to because that's one of the issues that people have had for many years with cannabis seeds is that they display variation and you know you, you don't want to uh i always kind of compare it to like there's a reason that tomato people farmers don't plant clone tomatoes that's because there are seeds of tomatoes that we know if you plant a field with canning type tomato for making sauce that's what you're going to get you're going to have a field of those types of tomatoes if you want a field mm-hmm. of cherry tomatoes you buy the cherry tomato seeds no one is selling seeds that make cherry tomatoes and you know it's not like mystery farm <laughs> so but yeah. that's that is what is you know predominantly in cannabis right now and and this is not to you know put down any seed companies or but but Many of the seeds that you could purchase would give you a very mixed bag of cannabis. And and that is, you know, ironically, that's how you discover new and exciting things. And so as mm-hmm. a company for us, like we have to both have those seeds that mostly we use those internally or we provide them to companies that we're collaborating with on what we call phenotype hunts. And those are, you know, that's a scaled look at a population to find which individual is the best. And then you capture that genetic and move forward with that one. And that's just kind of breeding one-on-one, but Mm -hmm. you know, we do that all the time. But as far as, you know, keeping genetics around and that is really an investment, in my opinion, an investment in the overall industry and an investment in ourselves that, we feel like is going to to be a good investment in the long run because in any kind of breeding, any big ag breeding, you always keep around your kind of original source genetics. So, and the reason that that is, is oftentimes as you breed a tomato that ships better, ripens the way you want, has the thick enough skin that it doesn't bruise easily and so on and so forth, you tend to lose certain things that that you may not even value until a little bit down the road and you realize that okay we've lost all of the disease resistance or specifically the resistance to a specific pest or pathogen or something like that and you don't know it until you know you've got these problems that end up blowing up in the field so you need to go and re-reference some of those source genetics because probably when things are evolving with natural disease pressure and natural pest pressure 
that is a limiting factor and therefore a trait that is naturally selected for. But specifically taking that species out of, let's just say, you know, the natural and applying pressures of an industry on evolution, it's a different type of evolution. And so it pays to hold on to what you, uh, whatever you started with, even if that was, you know, 200 years ago, it's wonderful to somehow be able to re-reference that. And and sometimes you can, because you can go and, and find that, you know, original tomato in the Andes and then use that. But Got a, you've got a natural source for it. Yeah. yeah. Oftentimes you want to just kind of figure out how you can keep it around on your own, in your own library. Yeah. So. so I'm curious on the logistics. How, how many you know strains do you have? How do you store them? How many, what's, your, what's the logistics of the company look like in terms of you know, keeping these libraries? And, and how do you distinguish between the things that you're kind of keeping for archival purposes versus things that are really kind of things that are in production for, for sale, for commercial sale? Right. Well, the good news is, is that, you know, it's germplasm or just seeds in general are actually, you know, naturally are great for storage. You know, they store well. And so like we are developing cryogenic storage for seeds that, you know, it should be that basically it's our hypothesis that and it could because of similar agricultural crops that you can put germplasm into cryogenic storage and as long as you know you don't take it out and put it back and do things like that but put it in there and it can last we don't even know how long but you know as long as kind of conceivably humans might need it so mm-hmm. you know, as long as the power doesn't go out let's just say or whatever yeah. but uh, <laughs> there are ways around that and that is good that because we're working with you know, we're a very seed-centric company. There are a lot of companies that are also employing tissue culture, which I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with that, but... No, explain the difference. So seeds are are basically just really put together in a way that, that they do last a long time because that, you know, was an evolutionary a strategy that they would, mm-hmm. you know, employ often is just... Well, you know, if there was a bad year and the crop was wiped out and a swarm of locusts came and just took everything out, well, there are seeds that are kind of buried down deeper in the ground and, you know, now is their time to shine. And so so that's why seeds are built to last because, mm-hmm. you know, they withstand all sorts of different environmental changes. And so, so we've got that, but then... The reason that people like to use tissue culture as well, even though it's a lot more energy intensive than storing a seed, what it is is you essentially create a you know a petri dish plant that's like literally living in in a petri dish. You have a median that it can develop small roots, but it, but essentially it's just directly absorbing sugars through the the petri culture and growing but not really growing it's they do grow inside it but it's very very slow and the reason people use that is a mostly it's used to clean a specific genetic so you know anytime you make a seed you're actually combining two sets of dna so you're bringing two genetics together and you don't 
like these days with our understanding of the genome and and how uh, DNA would will combine, we actually can say what those two you know genomes when they come together what they're going to spit out but there's still value to being able to kind of find one specific genetic and and freeze it in time and just be able to hold on to it for you know you could theoretically you could hold on to tissue culture forever just like the cryogenic freezing but it's a lot more expensive and and energy intensive but you know one of the other applications of it is is cleaning genetics up. So if you've got a disease, Dark Heart Nursery, who you know we work fairly closely with here in California, has developed a methodology to rid genetics of viruses, and that's been really helpful because you know as we unravel some of the issues that farms are having with their cannabis yeah. grows, we, we realize, oh, look, this is the reason that they're, they're specifically having fail after fail is they've been infected with this virus for God knows how long. And, and so yeah. let's, let's clean it up and, you know, get them back up and running properly. Oh, yeah. So tissue culture, we do use tissue culture, but we just, we, we also see that at the, the end game certainly is to have something that is, you know, as versatile and as resilient as as seed. And yeah. we know that we can make seed that is 100% going to give people like the exact traits that they are used to. So we can reproduce essentially uh, yeah. like a copy machine. You know, you put the original in, spit out 10,000 copies. And so that's, yeah. you know, where we've actually brought our lie our seed library and and our techniques to that level where that in essence that's what we're doing and yeah fascinating and how does this compare i mean i know there's i think it's one somewhere in california is the big global seed bank for agricultural stuff i mean is this the kind of a similar strategy or or ultimately do you see this as being just part of a larger seed bank you know kind of strategy or like i guess how unique is cannabis from a seed bank point of view versus the banks we have for tomatoes and corn and beans and all these things? Yeah, that's a good question. I certainly think that that cannabis will be included in those kinds of efforts very shortly, especially now that, you know, people are seeing, you know, there's a resurgence of industrial uses for hemp and food. We get all sorts of different products from, from that plant. So I tend to think that the agricultural the seed community is going to incorporate cannabis into those efforts that are sort of more broad but most of the seed banks that are kind of really in use that that are not just specifically intended for you know like reseeding after an apocalypse or something like that most of those are privately held seed banks that you know are within a seed company that has often some specific focus on they may be the soybean experts of the world or they may be the corn and wheat or <laughs> so people yeah. often kind of get there get in their lane and and stick to it because there's so much there's so much to learn and but then you have you know sort of the the big Monsanto groups that are just kind of 
dive into everything and or not everything but many many <laughs> seed genetics yeah yeah big egg yeah big egg yeah it's this has been a pleasure nathaniel if people want to find out more about you about the humboldt seed company what is the best way to get that information uh definitely go to our website which is just humboldtseedcompany.com we have a bunch of video content on there and you know more than just a catalog we've got a lot about what we do on there and then uh yeah i think you know check out our instagram as well because that seems to be yeah. you know the place in cannabis where people keep yeah, up absolutely yeah Cool. I'll make sure that the URL and your Insta handle is on there, on the uh, show notes here, so that people can click through and get it. Nathaniel, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. Anytime. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.